Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. Hey everyone, this is Behind the Scenes with Brian, and this is Brian, and today I am joined by Daniel Major. Daniel, how are you today? Very well, thank you very much, and thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And where are you uh, physically today? You find me in sunny Kent in the UK. Okay. Um, yeah, it's surprising that I can say that. Yeah, it's a, it's a balmy 20, 26, 27 degrees here. We're in the middle of a mini heat wave in the UK. Wow, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's amazing, and we're recording this during hopefully what is the waning days of the pandemic, and hopefully the UK is is weathering it as well as could be expected. Oh, absolutely! And you also find me in um, lockdown because I came back from an amber country, so I have to be locked down for ten days. Oh, so, okay. Uh, and I get phoned every day by the lovely NHS just to check I'm behaving myself and staying where I'm supposed to be. Oh, so, that's amazing! Yeah. And- I know the I know that the UK was really good at uh, the lockdown a year ago. I had a couple of interviews with people from there, and it seemed like it was really working well. Yeah, no, it, uh, they've actually done a pretty good job. Yeah, so, maybe, maybe not fun, but it was working well. Uh, no, <laughs> I wouldn't call it fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Daniel, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your education. Yeah, I, I, I'm a mining engineer by trade. In fact, that's actually what I still put on documents when I have to say what my profession is. And uh, so I describe this as kind of uh, jacks of all trades, master of none. Um, you know, that's kind of what mining engineers do. Uh, our degree is a diverse spread of absolutely tons of different things, that, but in no depth of anything. So I, I went to university here in the UK at the Campbell School of Mines. Um, kind of one of the last mining schools left in the UK um, now uh, as mining has kind of declined here. Uh, but started working in um, what was then Southwest Africa, became Namibia um, back in the early 90s um, and uranium. Um, so I saw a sort of change of government and independence there for Namibia. I went to South Africa and I saw the change of South Africa in 94 and I voted in the first elections. I was working in the platinum industry then. Uh, that was interesting. I was in the northern Transvaal, a sort of very Afrikaans part of the world yeah, um, back yeah. then. It was one of the few parts that voted no in the referendum. So it was, you know, culturally interesting part of the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, Went to the, live in Johannesburg, worked for one of the big mining houses, and I went to work for the banks. I wanted to understand the financial side of our industry. Mm. So I went to work for HSBC and JP Morgan. Well, as an engineer, you kind of do all the detail and you're worrying about, you know, every dollar a pound or every dollar ounce that you can save. And then you sit in a presentation and some banker comes in and restructures the financing and saves $300 million. And you go, I spent weeks just trying to cut some costs to save $300 million. And he does it with a pen flick on yeah. board. And you yeah. Yeah. That's really irritating, but I've got to understand that part of the business. And you kind of understand how markets work to a degree, and you understand what investors are looking at. So it's kind of set me in good stead, having done it for seven years, to then kind of come onto the back 
to the real world and come and work. So I went to work in Russia for a while. Um, I went to work for Oleg Deripaska. I was running 8% of the world's ferromoly out of there, out of these old mines. And then I got moved. He asked me also to look after the pulp and paper business, which was interesting, mm. um, particularly in the darkest of Siberia. Uh, there's some further interesting parts to that industry. Um, um, but then in 2008, the market crash, um, most of the expatriates kind of left Russia and had to go yeah. find another job somewhere else. So I went to South America, um, Brazil, uh, far north of Brazil, which was really interesting. Mm. Uh, fairly, fairly criminal in parts of it. Um, <laughs> and in, in Ecuador for exploration, then up into Quebec for gold mining. Um, and then in 2012, I came back to Africa where I kind of find myself very comfortable I've been running Goviex Uranium as a CEO since then and we've got projects in Niger right in the middle of the Sahara Desert in Zambia down in you know southern Africa and in Mali um, in West Africa so yeah an, an interesting and diverse group of cultures all focused on the uranium market yeah this sounds like you fit the definition of a tramp miner <laughs> yes, I think it depends how you're reading the word tramp in that one, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, here. Uh, yeah. Here, that's here why the... we do mining. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, that's why I got into the mining industry. You know, I actually got into it by accident. It was one of those where the career lady comes around school and says, you know, what are you going to do? And fill in the form. And clearly, when I did it, they were running out of prison guards because like two thirds of my class were told they should be worked for the prison service. Um, <laughs> and I said, well, you know, it's going to have to be something with engineering because I'm going to I'm going to struggle to get my English O level, which I did just get. Um, and I said, it'll have to be engineering. So she said, yeah. well, write to all these different engineering faculties. So it was the Institute of Mining Engineers, Electrical Engineers, Mechanical. And the only ones who replied to me were the mining engineers. So I went, <laughs> oh, I didn't know about this. So I looked at it and went, I can travel around the world. This is so cool. I've got to do this job. So that's how I ended up in the mining industry. It was like, I can get to travel around the world. And I have. So yeah, it's, been, it's been great. I mean, I'm yeah. doing this now for know, almost 35 years. So been all over yeah been all yeah over. that that is an attractive thing about it and i started out my life as a mining engineer and uh kind of similarly i got accepted to into a mining engineering program and the kids in my high school kept asking me brian what does the mining engineer do what does the mining engineer do and it's like what what don't they do you know it's yes <laughs> i just say we dig holes in the ground <laughs> <laughs> yeah interesting so Tell us about your company. Yeah, GoVX um, was founded in 2007. Uh, it was founded yeah. by a guy called Govin Friedland. Uh, for those in the mining industry, will know his father very well, a guy called Robert Friedland uh, from Ivanhoe. Um, so, you know, big pedigree. Uh, he saw an opportunity to kind of back in 2000 when uranium was kind of bull market was going forward. It was very clear that, you know, we had to get clean energy, particularly for China. Picked up some properties in Niger. He started a big drill program there. At the time, we were one of the largest drilling programs anywhere in the world, all being done by Nigerian drillers as well. So, you know, the, the guys have been mining uranium in Niger since the early 70s. Um, so that kind of started the company up. I joined to really kind of when that transfer from geology to mining to engineering came through. Uh, and then Govin and I decided with the board to kind of expand the business we had, which is why we went and consolidated projects down in Zambia and in Mali, but really wanted to focus on Africa. And really, because 
you know, you can get stuff done in Africa. Uh, you know, I think that's one of the key things. You know, you're working in countries with governments whose high part of their GDP is commodities. You know, it's yeah. really important yeah. to them that commodities come out. And as long as we find this social balance, you know, um, between, you know, what the governments have need from taxation and what the companies have got to earn from a profit perspective, you know, and as long as a pragmatism between both parties to achieve that, there's a lot of success can be had. But, you know, it, it does mean that the process is easier. I mean, Niger, it took us six months to get our mining permit. You know, if I was in North America, I'd be lucky to do it in six years. Um, if I would, if I even if I could get it, whereas, you know, the government's there, you know, they don't cut corners or, or you know, do antisocial things. But there's a pragmatism to the process, which is that, you know, when we did our environmental impact assessment, for example, we issued this 18 inch tall bloody document, it was uh, IFC standard documents so we didn't cut any corners but they actually just called everybody into one room it for a week and they said anyone who's interested in this project and wants to be involved in the environmental and social impact assessment review and how it's going to fit turn up for a week in this room and we literally sat there with like yeah. 100 people and did a page turn of this document and went through the mm. whole process and at the government they all got an opportunity to answer questions and everything was dealt with and we walked away week later the government said here's the final questions for you thank you very much here's your permit so you know straightforward deal with it um and and that's how we've dealt with a lot of things and you know i think the other good thing for us is we pick mining countries zambia obviously for its copper industry niger for yeah. its uranium mining yeah. and, and mali is growing as a coal producer um very strongly so so yeah no africa is very much a a place rich in commodities and really it remains very untapped um from a large aspect so you know i think once people get comfortable with the, the regions they're in you know there's a lot more potential to come out of africa and and as we're seeing with those skill sets uh, as well africa is developing its own skill sets uh, for people um you know i i was lucky enough Last week I was in Niger and I went to one of the Arano mines and, uh, you know, I saw a mine there. The standards were the same as if I was in Canada, the US, you know, South Africa or Australia, you know, it, great set of standards, safety wise, environmental wise as well. So, you know, you see the skill sets are right there. Yeah, yeah, I, I lived in South Africa and worked there for four years. So I've got a bit of a similar experience, but more recently in Ghana. And I, I agree with you that the standards yep. are, are uh, world class. Yep. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, and that's a key factor as well for people when they want to invest in companies or when we're trying to secure financing. You know, ESG is becoming a big issue. Um, and that, yeah. you know, to show yeah. that it can be done at a, at a world class standard is key uh, right. for investors. Right. So you mentioned uh, uranium, copper, and gold, and I can understand copper and gold, but what's the attraction these days for uranium? <laughs> yeah, I, it, green energy, green energy. Um, yeah. Nuclear is a big, it has to be a big part of the green energy scene. I mean, you look in any country that has got nuclear, it is a major proportion of the clean energy above its own capacity that's being produced. Um, you look in the US, it's like nine, ten percent of the energy produced is nuclear, but over twenty percent of the clean energy is actually nuclear. Uh, and you know, it has a lot of benefits to it. Um, it is very safe. 
um, you know, incredibly safe. And, I, and people have too many Homer Simpson kind of views on nuclear yeah. energy. Yeah, I, right. You know, we are a massively regulated industry, it, uh, you know, and, you know, I think the best thing I ever saw was there was a stat that, you know, you get more radiation from the person sleeping next to you in bed than you would living a mile away from a nuclear reactor. That is the level. <laughs> I mean, how about that for a start? You know, but but that's the reality. It is so regulated um, and it's so safe. Um, you know, and people talk about these nuclear disasters. Most of them weren't actually disasters at all, in any shape or form. Um, you know, and technology has advanced so much on these things. And also, I think the other thing frustrates us in the industry is that whenever kind of people go negative and they point out the one or two new builds that are going on at the moment, these are the first in class. You know, anything. You look at Tesla cars. How expensive if Tesla cars were before at the very beginning you had to be uber rich to be able to afford a yeah. Tesla yeah. you know now he's turning out rather more of them you know that it's becoming a little more financially and when you get you know Ford and everybody else electric cars are going to drop in price and that's what you've seen in China where China is now knocking out the same reactors they brought the time frame right down they're coming in under budget that's what will happen elsewhere so you know China is going from like 48 gigawatts of power now to 120 gigawatts in 10 years. I mean, that's how fast they're building out reactors because they want the clean energy to come through. And, you know, I think that's the frustration we have as an industry is that people keep reaching out, politicians particularly reach out for new ideas all the time. It's like, we're going to be hydrogen. It's like, okay, well, you haven't dealt with the electricity problem yet. Now you're going to get a hydrogen. Where are you going to get that from? And this is where nuclear is now finding its areas as well, which is, okay, yeah. We're actually perfectly built to produce hydrogen as well. So let's put our capacity to that as well and resolve that. And, you know, and you get a lot of power in a very small place. And then, you know, the other one is, you know, decarbonizing shipping. You know, there is some, there, I saw a stat out the other day. If 25% of the bulk fleet went nuclear, you'd have more energy, nuclear energy capacity than there's currently on land at the moment. So, but the ships yeah. will travel twice. But the ships will travel twice as fast, so which reduces your costs. So, you know, there's a lot of potential out there. And for, for you know, for where we're excited is that we've gone through a long period of a bear market, and so at the moment prices remain well below the production level of the majority of the industry, and so we and we're running out of we're we're sitting with about 180 million pounds consumed. 120 million pounds produced and no new mines can come on stream because the price hasn't reacted yet but it will and so that's really where Goviex is it's all about getting our projects ready to be built um to go forward into that fill that gap yeah yeah it, it's interesting that uh, nuclear energy was on a pretty strong uptick until Fukushima and that kind of let the wind out of the sails but there's there's no reason to think that any occurrence like that is going to be uh, happening again in, in the future. I think. The well, yeah, uh, and I think the problem is people call it a nuclear disaster, but there's only potentially one person that could have died as a result of the, the nuclear event. 
Um, and it wasn't a nuclear event. I mean, for goodness sake, that thing got hit by an enormous big wave that came in <laughs> that wiped out. And they already, the stats are showing more people have died, considerably more people have died. Almost a thousand people have died because they were moved out of their houses who, and they didn't need to be moved out of their houses. You know, the background radiation levels that justify to move those people from their houses are lower than the background radiation levels that you would naturally get in Chicago and Seattle. Yeah. So just because they were higher than what they historically were, they're still well below what you will achieve in other cities around the world. Um, it just made no sense. Uh, and it was a massive disruption that should never have happened. Um, you know, it was a, it was a natural disaster. Um, yeah. And you know, it's being controlled and dealt with appropriately. But, you know, people are starting to figure it out. Um, you know, if you want the other renewables which have to be part of it why wouldn't you use the wind and the sun but they're not there all the time they use vast areas of ground i mean you know people are seeing small solar farms but you wait until somebody wants forest to be chopped down in maine etc to put in a solar farm that they need there then you'll yes. see people having a difference of opinion about right. you know what is actually needs to be done um you know whereas nuclear you can have these tiny things so that's the other big area that you'll start seeing now a lot of people are putting the edges on but and you one thing fukushima did for everybody was laid our industry again relook at its own safety to make sure that it was so a lot of the design changes and new designs particularly the small modular reactors now are actually hands-free i mean literally they will look after themselves. They're built to do that. And then, so the small modular are not even pressurized vessels. I mean, they cannot do anything. Um, and they can, they only need reloading some of them once every 20 years. So, you know, and the nice thing about them is you can take out a coal-fired power station, which is what people like Exelon are looking at, at now. Yeah, yeah. And um, you trip out a coal plant and you put a big battery in its place with a nuclear battery right where it was. Just plug it back in on the top oh, yeah. and off yeah. you go. You've got yeah. energy. So, yeah, you know, right. I think it's a really exciting prospect um, globally for achieving the targets that are out there. And, you know, people really need to spend the time looking into it if they, they've got concerns. Yeah, I agree. That's, I think uh, that that was a very good uh, uh, discussion about why nuclear energy is, is good and it's green and it is going to be an important part of the future of energy. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I think that's the one thing that the nuclear industry has been very good at understanding it. It has to be component of with everybody else. Yeah. yeah. You, you can't choose. We need everything at the moment to be able to reduce carbon emissions and nothing should be precluded um, from that process. Right. And, and until we get some of those others on a pretty strong uptick, coal is still going to be an important part of our energy solution so that's, that's why we need things like nuclear to come in and, and again oil i think is always an interesting one for me because yeah. if you look at oil i think it's 30 percent of oil is actually not used for for combustion at all um we don't burn it either for cars or anything it's actually used for other things so i mean the most obvious one is obviously bitumen you know, if, yeah. if you yeah. oil production, where are we going to get the bitumen from that we all drive on every day? So unless we're all suddenly going to have flying cars to avoid the roads, um, you know, there, there are many aspects of oil that have to be taken into account that we use in multiple other products out there. Even the anodes that go in batteries for electric cars 
60% of that is comes from oil. It's the it's the it's synthetic graphite. Um, so you know people kind of go anti-oil, but well, how you can't be an totally anti-oil because the graphite needs to be built there to build the anodes that go in the yeah. car batteries. Yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah pros and cons and we have to balance it you can't just be totally you know bipolar on your views right yeah i, I heard somebody much smarter than me once say that we need to save the petroleum so we can make the plastics that we need <laughs> yeah. Yeah. absolutely absolutely so. Yeah. so so tell me about some of your other mining operations well, we just have those three in Africa, so they're all yeah. development, all development projects. Zambian one, again, very straight. They're all very similar in what they do. Um, yeah. The nice thing for us on our projects, they're all long life projects, mm -hmm. um, big scale, long life projects, which is great for the communities that they're in. Uh, they all have a lot of exploration upside. I mean, we literally turned our drill rigs off well, almost nine years ago because the size of the deposits were so big already. <laughs> really, you know, yeah. from a net present value calculation point of view, you did the calc and said, I'm already on 11 years. It doesn't really matter from a discount point of view after that. So why bother? Um, and save the money while you need to save it in difficult markets. So, you know, these are these are big projects and they can be made a lot bigger or a lot longer in life, which would be more the approach that we would take. Because, you know, you have to look at the sustainability of our industry and, and life of mine is an important factor of that, um, particularly, you know, for communities where you've got to make that, you, you've got to make mining and the benefits of mining support the community. And if you're going to have these short life projects where you never really have time to build that community sustainability up, in a short life so breaking yeah so how do you build capital for your projects in uh, canada for example they have the 43101 reports yeah i mean kind of doing what we're doing now i suppose is part of it um so i mean obviously you've got that yeah you got i mean obviously building up your position uh you've got to get out and market um you have to get out and, and do that side and get your 43 101s out you go through that whole process of refining through your pa your pfs your fs uh to get the project that you that you're looking for um and then really it's a case of you know i, I describe it as kind of a rubik's cube really because any project that you're project financing in the mining industry is going to need hedging in a form and you've therefore got to balance that hedging requirement with your debt requirement and your your equity side uh, and you know you're really sitting with a bathtub of value and you've got to take the bits out and mix them together so at the end the whole thing just locks together and that's kind of where we are at the moment certainly on the nigerian project is finishing that final feasibility study starting to look at how we would structure and argue our position on the offtake and then you know because the debt side want to know that you're getting secure pricing and then once you kind of got those two pieces everybody needs to know the equity is going to come in behind it as well with it as well so it's a kind of multifaceted stage to, to kind of build up that capital yeah yeah inter interesting and Tell me, tell me a little bit more about uh, how you find these uh, ore bodies to begin with. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> ask a mining engineer to how to explain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
know, as I say to most of my geological friends, I say, don't worry about it, I'm just going to blow it up anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, look, you know, that is, it's a regional play, you know, and anyone who's a geologist will probably criticize everything I'm about to say on this. But, you know, at the end of the day, every commodity has its regional positioning. There are different factors that come into that, structural factors that come into that. We can see it in our projects in Niger, for example, they're sandstone hosted. The uranium has come out of the granitic rocks and, and dissolved through. And as actually then comes through to you hit a carbon structure that reduces them out. So, you know, that's one form of geology. You've got a big interplay structure going on there. If you look at, say, our Mali project, which has got copper and silver and gold in it, a completely different set of geological structures are playing out there where you've got something more magmatic, which is pushing up the material into that. And you're looking for those types of structures that are coming through instead um, and layering it in. And after that, it's luck. I mean, you obviously make your luck. I mean, there are people like Govin's father, Robert, who's serially lucky um, because, you know, he... <laughs> You know, and clearly, you know, being able to take those big plays is seriously important. And, you know, that's why you come to the regions where you know things are happening. So it's why Govin came to um, Niger, because it's been mining uranium for 50 years already. I mean, that's why Robert Friedland went into the Congo looking for um, copper, uh, why he went and did the Platte Reef south of the anglo-american platinum projects because that was a platinum area already and incidentally i actually worked on those plat the other platinum projects for amplats before so you know yeah. so you, you, there are those regional plays going on and, and then people take a different view of looking at things which is robert friedland's very good at with his team um and you know after that it's just the exploration program of just infilling and and gradually building up and then you know us as the engineers take up control of it because yeah, great. It's in the ground, but how the hell are we going to get it out? <laughs> that becomes, yeah. Yeah, therein lies the real problem. Um, of yeah, we found it, but now we've got to figure out how to get it out of the ground. Um, so you know, and I think that's what make up makes our industry so interesting. You know, when I talk to young kids out there, it's like you know, certainly look at it. It's a fascinating industry. The aspects. There's nothing the same any day. Yeah, you, you're always different components of it um and it as, as i said at the beginning and you get to travel uh, yeah that's I, right see the world oh and parts that nobody else goes to probably because they don't want to but you do get to go and see them so yeah. it, it is fascinating yeah so how far down the road with your 43 101s do you usually go i i, I imagine you do the pea but then do you go pre-feasibility and then feasibility oh, all the way to the very end yeah uh, have to because that is the bankable document with that you yeah. take to show that you have got this that is what you are securing your financing on is that final fs so you know your level of detail has gone from um, yeah kind of guessing it down to the point where we are now digging small trenches in the middle of the nigerian desert to check the foundation footings for the process bump oh that's uh, great yeah Great. So that's the level you've gone from, like, yeah, this is the rough cost of a plant. Let's stab that out there to, okay, let's make sure the foundations work so the damn thing doesn't fall over when you have built it. And you start that everything about that changes the way you look at the design. 
you, you put out a package in the PFS. Now, when you do the package for the next stage, there's way more detail in the package design that you put out, uh, more referencing, even in on making sure that your power supply is the right power supply as well. So everything just changes with more detail as you go through. And then once you get that financing, obviously there's another level of detail that goes in, like, you know, what color is it going to be? And, you know, <laughs> lighting diagrams and all of those things become yeah. very much detail so you know, each level it costs more um but you gain more knowledge out of it and then that's what you go ahead and build yeah yeah so it sounds like that the uh the development process you know, going down the 43101 road is, is about the same for your minds as it would be anywhere in the world but because your permitting timeline is on the order of months rather than many years it seems like investors would really find these properties to be attractive. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, and I think that's one of the, the real benefits uh, of Africa and ours particularly is that we're permitted already. So, you know, we've already gone to that pre-feasibility stage. We already have taken off a level of risk. And you know, investment in mining is all about risk, you know, yeah. and, and whether it's technical risk, you know, commodity risk or, or sovereign risk, we've effectively dealt with the sovereign risk stuff because we've already got the permits that are required to do that building. Whereas others, you know, are still got, you know, say in North America, you've got years of environmental permitting to go through. Then you've got to get multiple permits to get your right to actually be able to build. Whereas we just get the one permit. So it's yeah. like, you can build it. Um, yeah. The layering in is, is a lot easier. So really, when you look at things from that perspective, a risk, you know, you're, you know, I call it sovereign risk. It's, it's more um, legislative risk. Um, it, it is much less um, that you're dealing with. I mean, yes, you are. You know, some people perceive the risk of being in Africa. But you look at Niger. The mining code hasn't changed since 2006. Nothing has changed since that time. And even that change was really just an adaptation of the previous code that was out there and just a modification. It wasn't a major change, it was an addendum. So, you know, from that point of view, you know, as an industry, we like things that stay the same as much as possible. We don't like change. Um, yeah. And so you, know, you see that you've got that, that balance uh, that you need of consistency. Uh, we've had changes of government. We've had changes of mines ministers nothing changes we just keep moving forward yeah and you know what i for an example i've seen in botswana a really good socio-economic development in tandem with the government and it, re it really can be done well to help the communities and the nation as a whole Oh, absolutely. I mean, certainly our approach, and particularly, say, give Zambia an example. You know, we work with the communities, we work with the government at the same time, particularly when we focus on things like education and health, etc. You know, we don't want to do things that people don't want, and we also want to make sure it works within the government. So, if you're building a school, make sure you build a school, a teacher's house, because then there's it's easier for the government to provide the teacher. You know, the yeah. same with clinics, then they can provide the nurse because you provide of the house so we you know the same where we are in niger as well and what we're now trying to do is leverage off partnerships with other groups there's some very very successful ngos out there as well who are, you know are much better skilled and you know we're a mining engineers we're very good at building things but you know how to set up an educational program is not our forte 
but there are groups out there like Plan International, etc., that you can leverage with and work with and, and partner up with. Uh, we're tending to do that on a lot of the agricultural projects we have. In Zambia, we're using a group called Rescope um, to try and use their skill sets in an area that we support and, and drive forward. And, and that allows a, a better development of a project as well. Yeah, that's that's terrific. That's terrific. And it, it sounds like your company's doing all the right things and that uh, investors are responding because of that. And I, I was wondering if you have any uh, key takeaways for us or any pearls of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Always new job. My pearl of wisdom probably doesn't belong to the older generation, but certainly any of the younger generation yeah. can do. I, I would certainly say always take the path you don't know the answer to. Um, and I put that as a career comment because my view is always that if you're in a career path and an opportunity comes up that's not one you expect or worth seeing, you know where the other path will take you to because you can see down that road. But if you take that other path, you may be surprised what's down it. And if it fails, you always just go back to the first road. You turn around and go back to your first road. But if you don't take that path, you don't know. You, there's the missed opportunities in life that, that are sitting out there. You will regret you didn't take. You know, that's uh, exactly why I spent four years in South Africa. I, I had a the notion that I didn't want to wake up one day and ask myself, I wonder what would have happened if I had, you know, gone down that road. So that's, that's really good advice. Absolutely. Yeah, advice to live yeah. by. Daniel, I, I really appreciate your time and your sharing your information with me. And one of the reasons I have this podcast is to make myself a little bit smarter and you've uh, helped me get a little bit smarter today. So I appreciate that been an absolute pleasure uh, and thanks for inviting me on and uh, i've really enjoyed it yeah and maybe we'll run into each other in person one of these days absolutely <laughs> when right. the new when we return to the old yeah old right. yeah <laughs> All right. well thanks again daniel and have have a great day thank you take care uh, bye-bye Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rockin'.